Hi, everyone. My name is Al D, and I am the host of the MBA Insider Podcast, a podcast for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help you grow your career. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I'm excited because I have with me Nick DeWilda. Nick is a product marketing principal at Guild Education. He is the editor and founder of Jungle Gym, his weekly newsletter, which we're going to talk about a little bit. And he's also a Stanford GSB graduate. I'm really excited to talk to Nick because I have not found too many people out there who care about careers as much as I do, but Nick might be one of those people. And so I'm excited to talk to Nick a little bit about his own journey and his own background in his life, his little, little bit about his time in business school, and then also just generally speaking about career development, particularly for MBA students and alum. I think this is a really important topic, not just about finding that first career after business school, but really thinking expansively about what careers can look like after you graduate, particularly as we enter this new world of work where there are so many exciting opportunities, particularly for those of us who are really career motivated and who are highly employable. So let's just dive in. So Nick, first off, thanks so much for joining me. I'm a big fan of your work and uh, appreciate the chance to kind of get to know you a little bit better over the past couple months. But uh, before we dive in, I would love to know from you, particularly because you're someone who's thought so much about your career. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, what was like five or six year old Nick? You know, what did he want to do when he when he got big or when he got older? Hey, Al, thanks for having me. This is this is great. Yeah, good question. So I think it was seven years old. I remember the year it was 1996. And my parents had this penchant for taking me to movies that were like well beyond my age range. So like I went to see like In the Line of Fire when I was when I was like six years old, like, you know, just crazy movies for a kid to watch. They took me to see Independence Day in 96. And I remember when the alien ship hovers over the White House and this like beam of blue light shoots down and the White House explodes. And I was like, man, movies are cool. And I want to be involved in this business making movies. That sort of led me, you know, I did a lot of theater when I was a kid. So was was in probably a few dozen plays, either acting, directing, writing, all the way kind of through even business school. And, uh, and actually did went to Hollywood after I graduated from Stanford undergrad to pursue a screenwriting career. And, and I'm happy to talk more about how that went and why I am no longer doing that. But that was at least my entertainment industry was my first love. That's great. So I guess I have to ask then, could you, if you're such a movie buff, could you give me a couple of, of your top movies or top favorite movies of, of all time? Yes. Let's see. There Will Be Blood is an incredible movie. P.T. Anderson, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, just like at his best. You'll watch it and you'll just be kind of mesmerized by him the whole time. The, the film is gorgeous, shot in terms of the visual shooting. Whiplash is incredible. Just like, you know, this idea of this mentorship between kind of like a maniacal music teacher. And it's just the main character of Whiplash is so devoted to his craft in a way it's almost very counter narrative to the way people currently think about their careers. They're, they're thinking about work-life balance and things like that. And, and I love Miles's character in Whiplash because he's just 
he's so focused on being the best. And his change in the end, but I don't think I'm spoiling it, is not that he should have more balance in his life, which I, you know, regardless of what I like, I like characters who who have a strong point of view and don't just feel like they like float along with with the social mores of the day. I think those are two great options. So let's talk a little bit more about what you were doing before business school. It sounds like what you thought about in terms of what you wanted to be when you grew up actually sort of became a little bit of a reality in terms of after you graduated from Stanford and entered into the film and writing industry. But could you talk a little bit more about what you were doing you know, before you went to business school and, and why did you even choose to get an MBA in the first place? Sure. So right after undergrad, I went to LA, did had sort of two careers while I was in LA. One was screenwriter and one was everything I was doing to pay the bills. And so the things to pay the bills were production assistant at ABC for this like ill-fated show that was like Grey's Anatomy set at a dance studio with like a lawyer is like the main character, just a ridiculous premise. And so as a production assistant for that, I was a waiter. I was a lot of things. But the writing piece actually went went pretty well. I, I wrote a, a spec script of a of a show that was just in its first season at the time called The Walking Dead. And that got me as a finalist in NBC's Writers on the Verge program. I wrote a pilot about boarding school that got read by some folks at the CW. So, you know, it was all in all, like, it wasn't a very fun year, but it was a very successful first year as a screenwriter. But it also, I saw other folks who were in the industry and what the career path looked like. And really, it was such a precarious one without a really good sorting function for talent. So when you think of sorting function, it's sort of like, what is it that you, that how do people get chosen for this career path? And for screenwriting, they're really, you know, like your spec script is part of it, but really it's very hard to judge talent early on. And entertainment industry in general, right? Like the, the first place is kind of the mail room and especially these, these big agencies. And it's really, can you survive abuse? <laughs> and, and if you can survive long enough, then you can go on to be, to sit at a desk. And of course, this isn't true about everything, but at least when I got there, that was the dominant mode. So ultimately decided that I didn't think that the entertainment industry was a place that I felt good building a, a career. And I also just didn't like being alone all the time, which is what you have to be good at to be a writer. So came back to Silicon Valley and sort of circuitously found my way into an early stage startup and was doing that, loving it, sort of a, a business development and marketing role. And but realized that that if I was going to level up at that company, I really needed some kind of business education foundation. And that was where I ended up applying to business school, which was, I was really torn. And so one of the things that I did, you know, right before I applied to business school was actually, I moved to that early stage startup because I wanted to have, I wanted to have a job that I would, that would be like a hard choice to leave. And, and it was a really hard choice. I think ultimately I'm, I'm really glad I, I went to business school, but like the company's still around today and they're, they're doing great. And so it was a tough choice, but but honestly, I had such an amazing time at GSB. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's great. So really quick, just to go back for a second. One of the things you said was just about how there was the screenwriting that you were doing and then all the other jobs you were doing to enable you to be able to actually, you know, really focus on the screenwriting in terms of being a waiter, in terms of all the other jobs that you had. What was it like to maybe work some of those other jobs, which I presume we're not necessarily the first choice of what you wanted to do, but you recognize that you had to do them in order to be able to pursue the thing that you did want to do, which was screenwriting. You know, what was it like to really in, 
you know, I presume it was a lot of work, period, because you're just spending a lot of time doing it. But what was it like to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but really, you know, sacrifice some of yourself to be able to do this, do this other thing that you really did really enjoy, but perhaps wasn't as financially as advantageous? Yeah, I think of it sort of like those jobs were not fun. <laughs> and so it really made me question, like, was this thing that I was doing them for worth it? And I love writing. Um, I love storytelling. But ultimately, I wasn't singularly focused on it. It didn't feel like the only thing that I could do. And it just, I think, I think ultimately, it was a really good thing to have to, to, have to do that work uh, in exchange for it. Because it really made me question whether it ultimately made a lot of sense. I think what I recommend, like, I, I think sometimes you just, you're in that mode in life, right? Where like, to do the thing you really love, you have to work really hard on the side. I mean, to some degree, I can talk about like my career right now is like, I do two things. I write a newsletter, which I don't get paid for. And I'm in marketing at Guild. And to some degree, like that work I do at Guild, which I like a lot more actually than the, than either of the jobs I had in LA, but that to some degree pays for this newsletter writing habit, which I love doing. So there's a whole bunch of ways to think about it. But I think, you know, thinking of what you do as a portfolio is a very fair way to think about your career. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to digging in and talking a little bit more about that in a little bit. But let's just talk about Stanford and GSB real quickly. It sounds like it was ended up being a great opportunity, even though you certainly did have to leave behind a great startup experience, but it sounds like it worked out okay. Just out of curiosity, though, obviously, lots of great things about GSB. But I'm curious from your perspective, was there a particular experience there that you felt was particularly transformative or just particularly meaningful to you and your own kind of growth? I think... At GSB, really, it was the people that I met, the people and the friends that I've gotten to know have been so transformative for me. And and I think one of the great sort of underrated things about business school, especially like, you know, the tech industry rags on business school all the time. But like, if you spend your whole life in tech, it's very easy to think that tech is the end all be all of interesting things. And really, like, I got to know people who were in the food industry doing social good, doing, you know, private equity, right? So all sorts of areas that I just knew, knew nothing about. And as the world accelerates and changes a lot faster, that kind of generalist perspective is really valuable. And I think it's one of the underrated things about business school where like, when you're there, you're sort of like, oh, these, these cases are kind of out of date, right? Like, we're, why are we learning about these things that aren't just software businesses? But it turns out that like, you come back to realize, hey, like knowing about these things and really being able to dig in and understand them, especially if you might make career changes in your life, turns out to be really valuable. And I think, sure, you can get that through the cases, but it's actually through the the individuals that you build relationships with, where you really get to understand different industries and different mindsets and people. Thank you. No, I'm glad you brought that up about just if you work your whole life in, in tech, you know, sometimes you can maybe miss some of the things that are out there. You know, I'm on Twitter as just as I know you are, and I feel like not a day goes by where there's all sorts of fights about things that I usually just forget about because they happen so often. But some of the more common ones are kind of like, you know, tech is the answer to everything, right? Startups are way better than working at a big company or, you know, tech being the end all be all or like whatever it is. And then one of the things that I always kind of like think about is, you know, particularly with something like tech, which I'm a huge fan of, like if you really do want it to be the end all be all, or if you do want it to be impacting everything, which it is, it also makes sense to be able to explore what those other things are that you're going to be impacting or transforming or reimagining or like whatever it is. 
there are these hot takes that come from the tech I know. that like everyone thinks are still contrarian, but they're like very consensus. So like, so when people rag on like consultants or MBAs, like it's like, yes, at one point in, in 2013, that was a contrarian. Right. Sure. And now it's just like, you know, the Twitter engagement algorithm rewards these kind of like goofy, you know, fortune cookie, slightly consensus takes. And so yeah. I actually think they're pretty boring actually at this point. It, it, yeah. it doesn't mean I'm like, I'm, a, I'm an MBA or consultant fan. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, I see, I see many of the flaws, but like, I think the discourse is, is a little off. It's rocker. <laughs> totally. No, I couldn't agree more. I think you're spot on with that. Okay. So you went and you got your MBA, you re-entered the workforce. Now you're, you're at Guild. I'm curious, how do you think your own kind of idea about career development I mean, just your own idea of your own career changed after you got an MBA, you know, so think back to, you know, what life was like before business school. And then, you know, kind of after getting your MBA, reentering the workforce. And even now, you know, you know, are there still things you believe about your own career development that you still hold to be true? Has it evolved or what after business school has maybe impacted you in ways that either have reaffirmed what you believed or maybe changed it? I don't know how much getting an MBA shaped my views about careers. I actually think that probably what's happened since um, has shaped those views more. There's like a general trend in the world where institutions and, and institutional gatekeepers are no longer the main vectors of opportunity. And in their place, the new real vectors of opportunity are kind of audiences let's say bottoms up instead of top down, right? It used to be that to legitimize yourself, you needed uh, one institution to put a stamp on you. Now, to some degree, it's like kind of your bottoms up reputation that legitimizes you. Um, and that's through the writing that you do. That's through that's through, through the work you do as well. But I think this, we've had an acceleration into these, these kind of, let's call them bottoms up careers, right? Like where opportunity doesn't have a single gatekeeper. It's sort of, I talked about this the other day. I was like, if you listen to baby boomers tell their stories of how they got their big break, it's like the partner at the law firm like gave them a shot. And if you listen to to I think you know Gen Z and millennial folks talk about their big break, it's like the thing, the blog post they wrote that went viral and got in front of ten people and got them a whole bunch of meetings and opportunities. And so I think like if you're thinking about how those big breaks happen, how opportunities emerge it is now happening in a very different way. And that's probably been the biggest change that I've had on the way I view careers. I think that makes a lot of sense. And maybe I'll try to contextualize it for the listeners out there, particularly those who are in business school right now or who are alum. So if you think about one of the reasons why you get an MBA, it's traditionally part of it is to be able to get through to the gatekeeper that maybe you couldn't have got into before. Right. And so it's kind of the classic career switcher, right? I was doing X and I want to do management consulting or investment banking. When you were, you know, a writer or a teacher, it was going to be hard for you to get past that gatekeeper who was screening for hiring, you know, investment banking associates. But part of the reason why you get an MBA is so that you can break through and get past the gatekeeper to get that opportunity. And then from there, you can continue to advance and grow either up the ladder or even go do private equity or go into these other other kinds of fields or whatever it ends up being. But part of the value of having an MBA in addition to the skills is being able to get a chance to get to open the floodgates, so to speak. 
And that is still an opportunity that's there. I think maybe what you're suggesting, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that it's not the only path anymore. There are others. And because of things like the internet, because of tools like Substack or Twitter or whatever it is out there, you can create these career paths for yourself that are outside of the traditional ways in which people traditionally have thought about their careers um, or even have gotten their breaks in the past. Is that like a fair assessment? I think institutional brands still matter. Sure. Um, and, you know, it, like institutional brands have a lot of budget that they can spend building their brand. And thus, you know, they bestow that to you. If it's a rare thing, like that gives value to your personal professional brand. Sure. But you are not so dependent on that anymore. There, there's this whole lot, there's this line that like, I don't actually know if anyone has ever followed through on this, but like in, you know, Hollywood movies, you'll see people say like, you'll never work in this town again, right? And it's like, what that means is like, I know all the gatekeepers who can give you opportunities. And if without my blessing, none of them will hire you, you'll never be able to earn a dime in this industry. And, you know, there's some industries where that's still true. There's lots of cost of capital or something like that. But in, in most of the interesting industries, it's much easier now to go independent, to do something that is not wholly dependent on any gatekeepers. Sure, sure. You actually wrote about this in your most recent email newsletter, but it's on something that you just said about the types of conversations or the types of things the boomer generation used to say about their career or about career development that may or may not apply to, gen, to millennials or, or Gen Z. Would just be curious to know, as you, th you, know, you said you were recently in one of these conversations, what are, you know, I know you just gave one of them, but what are the other types of things you either have seen or heard maybe that as you grew up that in the moment they probably made sense, but perhaps now that we're living in this new age where there are so many different opportunities and things are changing so much, they may not necessarily have the same or hold the same weight as they once did. Yeah, I think so. When it comes to learning, I think mm -hmm. it's almost like, you know, this word lifelong learning is like a goofy trope that like, yeah. you know, once like phrases shift to like the World Economic Forum, like they, they become <laughs> ridiculous. But like, but I think this lifelong learning thing is real. This idea that you could get all of the education you need for four years in college, two years in business school in advance of everything you're going to do is just crazy. And it's actually like, it was always kind of the wrong way to educate people. Like the way you want to learn things is like when you're currently doing them and when you can practice them. So, so there's a, there's an idea called learning in the flow of work where it's like the work you're actually doing is paired with education that is, that is helping you get much better at that thing. That's not something that, that most companies or learning programs are really well set up to do yet, but that's what the future of learning looks like. And when it comes to working, you know, I think, I think people will shift careers a lot more. I think uh, there'll be many more people who, who are independent, who are able to build businesses on their own. And I think we're with a, a significantly smaller number of people. And I think there will be ways to, you know, I mean, every time there's a shift like that, there needs to be ways to legitimize people. And to some degree, like what an MBA is or what, what, a, what a, an elite MBA sure. program does is it legitimizes people, right? And, most, and it mostly legitimizes them through the admissions process. And then to some degree through the actual two-year or one-year program. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think of some of the things that you're just describing, I think they were probably there 
or, or the seeds were there when you and I were in business school a couple of years ago. But I think they've really taken off over the past couple of years, just as the world has you know started to change so much. But you know, I'm curious, just kind of thinking back when you were either graduating business school or right thereafter, what did you think your future held for you? Like, did you think you were going to be in startups? Like, yeah, like how, like as times have evolved and changed, like how did you kind of approach that in, in your own lens? So during school, I spent a lot of time figuring out what I wanted to do next. And I realized that was education, talent development, career development. And so I started working for, for the company that I worked worked at after business school during my second year of MBA. And so I worked there for two days a week and found I was learning as much there as I was at school. And so and this was, was a, a school called Tradecraft that trained people for roles at early stage startups. And we trained growth marketers and product designers and sales and BD folks. So that was, you know, I, I knew that that was my general industry, education, career development, talent development. There's a lot that I really like about products, services that are a bit more in-person, right? Where, where you're actually getting to know a human being. I, I think ultimately, when it comes to things like changing your career, it's very hard to totally automate and scale all the things that are very unique to each person's career. And so I tend to like those type of businesses. And so and ultimately, that, that kind of had a really seamless transition into, into Guild after I decided to leave Tradecraft. Yeah, absolutely. And it you know, I definitely agree with you. Those are, you know, particularly because the inputs of those services are often human beings and human beings can be so incredibly inherently different from the next. I definitely can see that. I would, you know, it sounds like from your time at Tradecraft and even to what you do now at Guild, you've probably had, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations about careers, career development, um, individual one-on-one conversations with people about their careers, but just broadly speaking, just conversations about, you know, careers and career development in general. What really drew you to kind of being excited about this or being energized about this out of all the different you know things out there? You know, what, what really drew you to being curious or just really enjoying this topic? Yeah, I, I think that like work is so all-encompassing in our lives, especially today. It's our sense of meaning. It's, our, it's where we get our status from. It's where we meet our friends. It's where we, we build mastery, right? And, and so, and it's, it's also where we spend the bulk of our time of our waking hours. And there's something really powerful about helping people find that right fit for them. I think of, I mean, my mental model is that like time is your most precious resource because it's the one thing that you can't get any more of. And, And so being able to help people spend that time more effectively is really powerful. And I, I think ultimately Career decisions are really hard for people. It's very easy to get wrapped up in your own head. You think back, you remember your full story, and you there are all these insecurities it brings up. And so transitioning careers and moving up and moving into different industries, it's a doable thing, but you often just, you need advisors and you need help and you need someone who can both kind of see you, see the market and be able to like imagine a better future for you and help you achieve that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I know you've made a couple transitions and I've made some as well. And it's, you know, for someone for myself who, you know, I was a career coach for some time, even with that knowledge and insight, I mean, in some respects, yes, I was able to maybe do things a little bit better or quicker because I just knew I needed to do them, but it was still pretty freaking hard at times. And it really, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure what your experience was like in the transitions that you've made, even though you've had all these conversations about career development, even though you live, think and breathe it, but it can be really challenging to do without 
you know, people keeping you honest or people giving you a good sanity check or people helping see you in a way that maybe you can't always see yourself, right? Just by looking in the mirror. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I talk to so many people who like, you know, they come in and they, I talk to a lot of folks who are, you know, looking to break in a guild and like, and they're, they're either, you know, some of them are applying for jobs that are way beyond them, right? And so that they're picking the sure. wrong entry point that way. And some people are totally undervaluing themselves. And they're like, oh, like, you know, this job rec has, you know, 10 things and I'm only good at seven of them. And so thus I can't apply for it. And it's like, do you know how much time someone took writing that job rec? Like very little. So like go apply for it and like, let's see. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that at least I did appreciate about business school, which I often find really challenging sometimes when you're going through a career search outside of business school or just a general one is that at least in business school, number one, you have a couple hundred people who are kind of going on the journey with you, right? I mean, everyone's doing their own thing, but you're not doing it in a silo. Um, and then you certainly have a whole bunch of resources at your disposal. But then, you know, in the working world, a lot of times, I mean, I think some people do have really good networks, whether that's because they reach out to them or cultivate them or just they have them. But sometimes going on a career search or going on a job search can be a really lonely thing. And without, you know, being able to, you know, engage, you know, with other people, you know, I think that can be really, really challenging. And so that is often one of the things that I really encourage people who are not in a school setting um, or any other professional school setting for that matter is, hey, like, don't worry about like, you should like activate the team. Like you don't like, this is not something that, you know, you need to do on your alone. And even for the point that you just made, you know, you being able to give someone that perspective that they don't have. That might have just saved them, you know, so much time. Like if they didn't have that, like who would, who knows what, what would have happened, I guess. And so that is also something that just strikes me a lot of times with career search is just like, like, yeah, it's your individual search, but like, it's really hard to just do by yourself in a silo, you know? Yeah. The other hard thing about career searches or career transitions, I'd say is most people get trapped in their own heads. They're thinking yeah. about how, what to say to answer this interview question. But, sure. but really the, the key to, to pulling off a transition is to occupy the mind of your hiring manager and recognize that your, you know, your hiring manager is this flawed, scared individual who's nervous about their own career. And so mm -hmm. how do yeah. you de-risk yourself for this other person? And that kind of, that empathy is particularly hard to pull off when you're sort of in the survival mode that is a job transition. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I want to. The other thing I want to talk to you about because we touched on it briefly is your newsletter, uh, Jungle Gym. So, we'd love to know, you know, tell us, you know, what it is, what it's about, and why did you start writing it in the first place? Yeah. So, the Jungle Gym is a newsletter designed to help readers build more fulfilling careers by integrating their work and life. And I started writing it. Honestly, I'd been writing a lot on Medium. Uh, it was part of part of the way we sort of marketed Tradecraft. And one of the things I noticed was that I'd get, you know, really good responses to something that I wrote on Medium. So lots of readers, but then actually reacquiring those readers was really hard. And so I got some good advice that you actually want to have a, a newsletter so that you can sort of own your audience, let's say. And so I started the Jungle Gym on Substack in 2019. And, and really the, the main goal was honestly a way to keep in touch with a first degree network and kind of bundle writing and distribution into the same motion. So, you know, when your network reaches a certain size, it's very hard to like have consistent coffees with people. And so the newsletter to some degree was, was a way to like 
stay top of mind to people or just like catch up with people um, in sort of an asynchronous way and then and like leave it open where if, if they want to talk to me, they, they always had sort of an open line of communication in. I would say what happened in 2020, sort of uh, as I was I was transitioning into Guild, was some of the things that I was writing started really picking up steam and getting a lot of new followers. I start and and that that was exciting. It got me excited to, to actually grow the newsletter. And so I started, you know, writing more. And as I did, the newsletter grew a lot. So it grew from I'd say about 600 people to 3,000 people within a year, which was pretty exciting. And and so I just realized it was, it, it kind of scratched that it, that screenwriting itch that I used to have and found it to be really good for just serendipity, right? Like by writing online, just good things come to you. And so, you know, that plus my work at Guild together, that forms a really, that it fulfills a lot of my needs. It hits a lot of the areas of my life that matter to me. And so that was really the the impetus behind it. Thank you for sharing that. And on that notion, I, I love what you said about how this plus your day job helps kind of you hit a lot of the things that you need to be fulfilled in life. And I like that you said that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it sounds like you have a decent sense of what those things are that you need, right, in order to feel fulfilled. Because um, sometimes not all of us have time to put a pulse on that or really work through that or or see how those change maybe even over time. So I think that's the first thing that's really great. But the second thing that it sounds like to me is, you know, I'm someone who, and it sounds like you are too, like I get a lot of meaning out of the work that I do. But it's very easy also to kind of equate the work you do and the outcomes and outputs of it with solely who you are or what what your work, your work kind of is, right? Versus or also to over-index and right and putting so much of your life and your fulfillment into one thing, like a job or an organization, right, that you're affiliated with, such as an employer. And so not only being able to like figure out what is the life that I want to live and how do I find different vehicles to get a meeting out of it, but also just, you know, the understanding that yes, the outcomes matter, but so does just putting in the time to do the things that are interesting or engaging or fulfilling to me, regardless of what those, those outputs are and, and not conflating those too much, you know? Yeah. I think like work can play like one of three roles in your life, right? It can either be mm, yeah. like, it can be your source of meaning and that's totally okay. Right. Like I, we talked about yeah. Whiplash, like for Miles, the main character, like drumming is his source of meaning. Right. And like, and relationships are a side thing, but they don't really matter to him. And like, a lot of the greatest people who moved humanity forward had workers, their source of meaning. And I think sure. if, if that's you, don't let society tell you it shouldn't be. On the flip side, like work can be your enabler of meaning. So like, mm-hmm. so work can be the thing that you do in order to earn enough money to do the thing that you really mm-hmm. want, which can be, you know, raising kids. It can be whatever that is, you know, don't let society tell you that it shouldn't be that. And ultimately you shouldn't necessarily take that promotion to senior manager if it's going to mean that like you're not going to be able to have time to do the thing that you really love doing. The third way is a portfolio meeting. That's where most of us want to be, is my guess. It's, yeah. it's sort of you want to have some family, you want to have do well in work, you want to have your investments do well on the side, you want to learn a bit. Like most of us have this portfolio of meaning. And and that's a really good thing to have because if one of those legs falls out, like you've still got some supports. That said, you know, balance is really hard. That's the really yeah. tricky thing. So 
Yeah. Well, I was, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that. And part of the, I was going to sort of ask you is how do you, you know, for thinking about this as like a portfolio of investments, right? Like how do you balance the investments that you make in terms of the investment being your time? Um, and I asked the question because I certainly haven't figured it out. I mean, I think I, I've learned some things. I've done some things well. I've definitely made a lot of mistakes, but I'm just curious of, as you know, someone else who kind of looks at this as a portfolio, you know, either what has worked for you or, or how have you tried to approach it um, as best as you can? Yeah, I think often if you can, it's really nice to have some sense of integration where the thing that you love to do on the side. So yeah. all, it's easier to talk in, in yeah. concrete yeah. terms. So the work I do at Guild, I'm very, I'm sort of, when it comes to marketing, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about Guild's thought leadership. And so I spent a lot of time reading about the discourse around the labor market and what's going on. And like that helps me write my newsletter and writing my newsletter helps me be better at my job. And so while those two domains, Guild doesn't scratch the same itch as the newsletter and the newsletter doesn't scratch the same itch as Guild, they both really complement each other. And so if you can, finding ways where the two things or multiple things work pretty well in line, that's helpful. So find a place where you have friends at work, right? That's a big plus because you're able to scratch your socializing itch at work. There are definitely ways that you can do that. And I think as often as you can, thinking about how can I do two things at once with this, that tends to help in a world of limited time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. To killing two birds with one stone. That's uh, it's a effective way to do it. And as I think about it too, even for myself, I remember a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, or about a year and a half ago when I started writing my book, I remember going to my manager and being like, Hey, like just giving you a heads up, you know, I'm going to be writing a book. And her response was, Oh, great. This means you're going to be a better marketer. Awesome. Good for you. Number one, it was also as an addendum to what you said, it also is nice when you have a manager, you have a team that, you know, embraces the kind of multifaceted aspects of yourself. I mean, and is supportive of it, uh, but who also can help in terms of helping you integrate some of those things. And I was very appreciative that they saw immediately right away. Not only was this going to, you know, be great for me, but like, you know, they could also see how it would, you know, benefit me as a marketer as well for that matter too. So hundred percent. Yeah. My, the folks who I spent time with at Guild are just, they're, they're so supportive of, of kind of the, mm-hmm. the stuff I've done on the outside. And that's, it makes all the difference. Right. And, and like, and ultimately like, you know, I think as long as, as someone is doing their job well, sure. I think it's actually, it's usually a good thing to try to support those outside activities because because often they're the thing that provides the energy to be to able to that. come into work excited. I couldn't agree more. So one of the things you wrote about in your newsletter and we touched upon briefly is this idea of audience as a career mode. So I guess first, could you talk a little bit about this idea of like what a career mode is? And then could you also maybe share kind of your perspective on why building an audience could be a career moat. Sure. So there's this interesting story around copywriting, right? Where like copywriting for a long time has been like this, the six figure skill that like every marketer needed to learn. And that all changed in June of last year when GPT-3 launched. Now, for those who don't know, GPT-3 is a language prediction algorithm. And the wild thing is you can plug in, you know, a blog post from your favorite author and it can... Fin- and GPT-3 can finish the last third for you. And so in that author's voice, in a way where you can't totally tell that it's not the author writing it. And that's that's amazing. And 
And of course, copywriting is not fully commodified yet. There's still plenty of room for great copywriters and, and there will be for some time, but the writing is on the wall for that and many other skill sets. And so if you believe as I do that automation is going to be rolled out, not just for frontline jobs, but for knowledge worker jobs, basically any role with a skill set that's rare and valuable will ultimately have strong incentives for entrepreneurs to want to automate it and for companies to want to buy automation software for it. Now, where the technology is, I can't speak to that exactly, but like from everything I can see, right, this is this is something that, that's going to be happening over the next few decades. And like, it's a safe bet to say that there are many skills that people practice today that will be fully automated. And so the question is, a career mode you can kind of think of is like, it's not the thing that gives you it's something that gives you job protection for your current job, but that ensures that you can always be employable for years to come. And I think the, the person who came up with this was Edric Chin, who writes a great blog called Common Common Cog, I think it is. But he, he's fantastic. I really encourage all your readers to subscribe to him. Uh, he's one of my favorite writers and thinkers on careers and learning and things like that. But he talked about this idea of, of career modes. And, I, and I, think of, I think of audience as one of the best career moats for a world where automation is going to become more prevalent. And, and the way I think about it is if you're thinking of what are human beings innately good at that machines are not, and what comes to mind very readily is influence. Humans naturally pay attention to other human beings. And that's a really powerful force. And we pay attention to decide what we want to figure out how to behave in certain situations. And we humans are very good at detecting who to take cues from. So they want people who are self-similar. They want people who are prestigious. But basically what that tells me is that influence is something that humans will do for a really long time. And so in that world, building an audience becomes a pretty valuable asset that can help your career. And that's kind of whether you're like, it could be because you're independent and you're doing your own thing and you want to sell books, courses, consulting. It could be because you want to go work for a company and you actually have affinity with an audience that they want to build. So I think ultimately building an audience is, is one of the, the best things you can do to sort of secure a, a long-term advantage in your career. Yeah. I thank you for sharing that and for breaking that down. And so a couple of things. Number one, my teammates and I, we always have this running joke about B2B software companies and their websites. Like if you don't look at whose name or logo is on it and you just looked at the copywriting, it all looks the same. And like we've always joked about, we should just write a program or write like a basically like a copywriting generator that literally can just do the messaging and positioning for B2B software because it literally is like all the same. But totally. now we don't have to anymore because because all the AI tools. So just a, a marketing little nerd out there for a second. But <laughs> oh, a couple of things that you said that really you know jumped out at me is number one is really about you know, what are those things that are going to are, are rare and valuable, right, that you can use as a point of differentiation to be able to have opportunities in your career. But the other thing that I think, you know, stands out to me about what you said is just with this idea of an audience. I mean, so in our world, in the creator economy, we often talk about this idea of like, you know, a thousand true fans or just, you know, having people out there who are really excited to read your work or to support you in your endeavors or to buy your merch or whatever it is. And I mean, in many ways, it's an extension of things we've already intuitively known about, you know, yeah, like, I think we've all known that we should have people like in our corner. But I think it's more about being thoughtful about 
who is it you're speaking to? And what are you communicating to them in a way that makes them want to listen to you or engage with you or support you for that matter? Whether it's because you uh, there are people that you want to work with in the future or that you want to be employed by or people that you do want to sell to or that you do want to monetize off of or, some, or something else. And then the other thing I was just going to say to it is that, you know, sometimes I think it's easy for, you know, me as a podcaster, and I don't know about you, but well, you're not monetizing your newsletter yet, but like this idea that like, oh, you know, if I have a side hustle, like I need to turn it into something or it needs to, you know, and for it to be quote unquote legit, like it, it either needs to have this big audience or like it needs to monetize. And I think to me, when I think about the audience piece, I think that's a great byproduct if, if that's what you get to, or that's what you want to do. But it can also just be just the types of people you want to engage with or the types of people that you want to get to know, or the types of conversations that you want to be in or around, because it's interesting, it's exciting, you have something to share, but just really just kind of expanding out as to just, you know, I got to be the next person to make it big on Twitter, or the next person to do this, or the next person to do that. I agree. Yeah, it's, um, I think that this idea of, and I, I think the creator economy and building an audience right now is very inflated, like, like, sure. or, 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 yeah. or not yeah. inflated, right? Like, like we think about them as the same thing, but in reality, like building an audience doesn't have to mean you're like performing on TikTok or, you know, tweeting. Sure. It's it, it sort of like, it means that as you think about your career and where you want it to go, there's a certain set of people who you are going to want to build relationships with and being able to communicate insights to them in a scalable way yeah. In order to keep those relationships really strong, that's really what what you what I think is important. Yeah. Versus like, it's not necessarily about size of audience. Like, in fact, yeah. you can get ten Fortune, you know, one thousand CEOs to listen to you. It's probably way more valuable than having exactly you know yeah. uh, hundreds of you know random people who you don't know. Right, right. I think you're right. And even now, I'm a sports fan, and so one of the things I think about are professional or college football players who are trying to get drafted or or even professionals for that matter. Like if you're a college football player, what do you do? You go to a combine and they film you. Why? Because all 30 teams want to see how you, you know, what what your running is like, what your jumping is like, you know, going through all the drills. Or if you're a professional athlete, you know, if a a team wants to evaluate you, what are they going to do? They're going to look at the tape, right? And in many ways to the point you're making, building an audience and, generating those insights and making them available is something that athletes have been doing for a long time, right? Because that was how they were, you know, a team figured out, oh, should we draft this player or that player? Or should we trade for this person or that person? Well, it's like, well, let's let's look at their tape. And so in this case, we're just extrapolating that out for a much larger group of people who aren't necessarily, you know, playing football, but are thinking about what's the equivalent of that for myself as a professional in the workplace. So that was just an, an analogy, I guess, maybe that comes to mind. You know, while we wrap here, maybe last question, I'd be curious to know, you know, what advice do you have for MBA students who are, let's just say they've bought into this idea of, okay, audience as a career mode is great. How do I get started? Or like, how do I know what audience to build or, you know, what tools I should use? Or like, how do you, like, how would you recommend like an MBA student kind of get started if they buy into this idea of building an audience as a career mode? Sure. I'd say start with your career goals, right? So, so what do you want to be in 10 years? Do you want to be an investor? Do you want to be a consultant? Do you want to be a CEO? And I think there's the more explicit you can be, the better, um, because that's going to give you a sense of what kind of audience you need to build. So let's say your goal was to be 
an independent marketing consultant, right? You might say, okay, well, in order to be an independent marketing consultant, who's going to decide whether I have the revenue I need to be able to keep this business afloat? It's going to be CMOs. Okay, so maybe I should build an audience of chief marketing officers. And then the question is, okay, well, what is it that chief marketing officers want to hear that is in the Venn diagram intersection of things that I'm good at? So maybe it's it's like, hey, I have some some proprietary access to like interesting marketing experiments that my clients are running that I can share out. And so maybe you decide, hey, I'm going to make a newsletter where each month I share three interesting marketing experiments that I'm seeing in the wild, right? And and it doesn't need to be a newsletter. It could be a podcast. It could be YouTube. It could be, it's sort of your goal is like whatever engagement vehicle you build should be one that solves that ideal kind of audience members problem. So it's kind of working backwards from like, from what do you want to be in order to be that? Who needs to say yes, or who needs to give you something? What's their problem that you can engage them on? Like, how can you give them something valuable? And then in exchange for some sort of like subscription to you and your brain, and then what kind of engagement vehicle can you build in order to to sort of sustain that relationship? And then finally, the question is like, how do you reach those people? And, And that's, you know, that's the challenging part. But Usually you start with your inner circle. Once you're once it's clear that you're providing value to your inner circle, you ask for a, for some referrals. Once those referrals start going well, then you're trying to market your work into pools where uh, where your ideal audience member might spend time. That's great. I love that advice. Nick, thank you so much for coming on today, for talking about your journey, talking a little bit about life post-GSB and talking about all things career development and all of the things that you do. If people want to engage with you further, where can they find you and where can they find your newsletter? Of course. Thanks, Al. Appreciate you inviting me. Yeah. If you want to check out the newsletter, head over to junglegym.substack.com or you can hit me up on Twitter at Nick underscore my last name, Dewilda, D-E-W-I-L-D-E. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.